The Lord be with you. Welcome to this revisited pilot episode of Suspended in the Word. When the Word became flesh, eternity entered time. And so here we are, suspended, as it were, in the Word as we go about our lives, Christ on every side. The hope of this weekly podcast is to provide a nourishing help for us as Pilgrim Church as we go about our daily lives, in the workplace, in our family, amongst our friends, and in all our undertakings. We travel together from Sunday to Sunday. And so this podcast is meant to bridge that time throughout our week so that the grace of the former Sunday carries us through to the next, which we always approach with anticipation and joy. We make this journey from Sunday to Sunday, going from strength to strength and receiving grace upon grace. While last Sunday was the Epiphany, and we featured that in our bonus episode, the very next day was the Feast of the Baptism of the Lord, culminating Christmastide. You'll notice that in our churches, the liturgical color has returned to green, and our Christmas trees and decorations are well and truly packed away by now. We might ask, why was Jesus baptized? I think this question is only properly answered by making reference to Christmas, which I suspect is why Christmas ends with the baptism. As far as our secular calendars are concerned, Christmas begins and ends on the 25th of December. It comes, the party begins, and suddenly it's over. As people of faith, we know that the mystery of Christmas is far too deep and rich to take in all at once. We must traverse the rich and unexpectedly diverse colours and textures of the whole Christmas season, with feasts like the martyrdoms of the deacon St. Stephen, the Holy Innocents, and St. Thomas Becket, the feast of the Apostle and Evangelist St. John. And if you were at Mass or noticed the readings of that day, the Gospel teleports us back to the empty tomb on Easter Sunday. Feasts like the Holy Family, the Mother of God on New Year's Day, Saints Basil and Gregory, who are a powerful icon of Christian friendship, the holy name of Jesus, and finally the Epiphany. Each, if we have the eyes to see it, providing an entry point into an ever more rich experience of this celebration, helping us to peel back the profound mystery of this most solemn and sacred time we call Christmas. This journey shows us the littleness God was happy to assume, coming to us as a frail, helpless, adorable little baby. Despite that, we see the horrific fear of King Herod, who was driven to slaughter every child two years and under in Bethlehem, because he dreaded the thought that this prophesied king would grow up to usurp and overthrow his own little kingdom. Is it any wonder that Jesus so often says to us, Do not be afraid. Fear can not only paralyze us, it can also lead us to commit great atrocities. For some reason, the church connects Stephen's martyrdom to the Christmas celebration. One of the antiphons on the 26th of December reads, Yesterday the Lord was born on earth, that Stephen might be born in heaven. He entered into the world, that Stephen might enter into heaven. Why connect these two events? They are not at all directly related when one reads the Gospels and eventually ends up in the Acts of the Apostles, where the martyrdom is featured. And yet, liturgically, 
They are side by side and they interact. The same could be said for the feast of the Apostle St. John, the only apostle who was not martyred, that is to say, killed for the faith, which was the fate of the rest. What gospel passage do we hear a mere two days into Christmastide on St. John's feast? On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, namely John, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have put him. This in the middle of Christmas. It's hard not to experience some minor whiplash when we hear it. Perhaps the connection is in the closing line of the gospel. He saw and he believed and is further emphasized in the first reading from John's first epistle. Something which has existed since the beginning, that we have heard and we have seen with our own eyes, that we have watched and touched with our own hands, the word who is life was made visible. In other words, I am here to testify to the incarnation and what our incarnate God did for us. He concludes, we are writing this to you to make our own joy complete. Put simpler, joy to the world, the Lord is come, let earth receive her king. See how the ripple effect of Christmas doesn't wear off, it doesn't dissipate with time and space, least of all liturgically, since the liturgy allows us entry into a kind of eternal moment. You may have heard it said that there is really only one mass and yet day after day we go to Mass and hear different readings and pray different prayers and commemorate different things. But it is the one definitive Mass, the one perfect sacrifice of Jesus, our eternal High Priest, fittingly offered and found acceptable by the Father. That is being continually teased open. And we find that everything is there. It's all compressed into a singular holy hour. All that to say, for us, the Church, Christmas affects everything. After these initial feasts came the Holy Family. It celebrates Jesus, Mary and Joseph, whose company and patronage we enjoy, and whose shining example of domestic life we are to try and imitate by practicing the virtues of family life in the bonds of charity. We know the Christmas story, and the link between that and this feast is very obvious. Jesus is born of Mary. His human nature comes entirely from her. He has her DNA. But Jesus is also the legal son of Joseph. This is important because both on Mary and on Joseph's side of the family, Jesus can claim Davidic lineage. He is the descendant of David of the tribe of Judah the long-awaited Messiah. The story we are presented with on that day from Genesis is also noteworthy. We hear God promising Abraham, then Abram, a great inheritance. Have no fear, God says. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. Finally, Abram says, Lord, what good are your gifts and blessings upon me? I have no heir. Everything you give me will go to my servant. God replies, no, your heir shall be your own flesh and blood. 
Then God took Abram outside and said, Look up to heaven and count the stars if you can. Such will be your descendants. Friends, we are these innumerable stars. We are not merely servants of God. God has a far greater vision. By the graced adoption of baptism, we are rightful heirs of God's kingdom, considered firstborn sons and daughters, inheriting that which belongs only to the only begotten Son, and all because of Christmas. We could unfurl the other feasts mentioned, and there will be a time for that, but if all that has failed to strike us yet, for whatever reason, we have now the feast of the baptism of the Lord. In the beginning of John's Gospel, we hear these words. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. John chapter 1 verse 11. And so we see over the course of John's Gospel, Jesus' followers being invited, welcomed, received into the family of God, born again of water and the Spirit, made adopted sons and daughters. Jesus is baptized not for his own sake. We hear from the church fathers that the waters rejoiced when he entered and the whole world was made pure. To be sure, it is Jesus who baptizes the waters, not the other way around. You might remember the prophet Jonah offering himself to be thrown into the sea to calm its anger. It has been said that in his baptism, Jesus became the true Jonah saying, pick me up and throw me into the sea. The sea of our dark, chaotic world and the strange, dark, swirling depths of our hearts. And it will become calm. You might remember the episode with Naaman and the prophet Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 5. When Naaman is incurably sick with leprosy, Elisha instructs him, go wash yourself in the Jordan. Jesus doesn't stand afar off and say, go over there. He immerses himself in the Jordan and says, come to all who are thirsty, hungry, poor, blind, lame, crippled by sin and shame. To everyone, he says, come to me. Each and every one of us is called to enter these waters and to die there. Die to our old way of life, that we might rise to new life with him, sharing in his resurrection. Water, of course, is such a fundamental symbol of life and of death. Think of the incredibly destructive power that water can have on this planet and on communities. And yet, especially here in central Queensland and in the West, we long for restorative waters to quench our thirsty land and to bring new life. That's where we've come from. To where are we going? Next Sunday is the second Sunday in ordinary time, and we will hear the vocation of Samuel, son of Elkanah and Hannah. What we hear is chapter 3 of the first book of Samuel, but some important context is given before this. Elkanah had two wives, one who bore children, and the other, Hannah who could not. So she took her grief to the temple to pray. And she says, Should you condescend to notice the humiliation of your servant and give me a boy, I will give it to God for the whole of his life, 
and no razor shall ever touch his head. Eli was a priest in the temple, and he saw her, and when she explained her prayer, he said, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. Soon enough, she did conceive a son, and after she weaned him, she presented him to Eli in the temple, and she praised this beautiful canticle, which is remarkably like the canticle that Mary sings in the presence of her cousin Elizabeth. She says, My heart exalts in the Lord. In my God is my strength lifted up. And goes on, The bow of the mighty has been broken, but those who were tottering are now braced with strength. The full-fed are hiring themselves out for bread, but the hungry need labor no more. The barren woman bears sevenfold, but the mother of many is left desolate. And on and on she goes in heartfelt jubilation and prayer. It should be noted that Eli gains a great gift in the child Samuel, as Eli's own sons, who are priests, are a scandal to him and the nation of Israel. They would help themselves to the sacrificial food offerings and live like slothful gluttons in the temple. They earn a heavy punishment from God. But in stark contrast, we hear that the child Samuel went on growing in stature and in favor with both the Lord and with people. Now, when it was rare for God to speak and visions were uncommon, it's this lad, Samuel, who hears God call to him, Samuel, Samuel. And after three occurrences, Eli directs him to say those now famous words, Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. We ought to receive, I think, in this story of Samuel, an encouragement to hear God speaking to each of us and calling us by name. God may not speak in distinct words as with Samuel, but God speaks to us through all of creation. This is what we mean when we speak of sacramentality. As the poet Gerard Manley Hopkins wrote, everything is charged with the glory of God. It shimmers to us like shook foil. This doesn't mean we can avoid becoming acquainted with Scripture or speaking to God in explicit mental prayer. Remember Elijah atop Mount Horeb. God did not speak to him in that moment through the powerful wind, nor the earthquake, nor the fire. God spoke to Elijah apart from any such experience. Nonetheless, it is true that absolutely everything is at God's disposal. Nothing is off-limits for him to use to communicate his tender love and gracious will to us. So we must listen. Then in the Gospel we hear John the Baptist introduce his disciples to Jesus with these words, Behold the Lamb of God. This is a direct reference to the book of Exodus. The Hebrews are enslaved in Egypt and Moses is called and sent to bring them out of the house of bondage and into the land which God has promised them, a land flowing with milk and honey. And the means by which they will be liberated? Listen to this from chapter 12 of the book of Exodus. Each family is to take a lamb for themselves. You shall keep it. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to slaughter it at twilight. 
They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that same night with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Whatever is left, you shall completely burn with fire. Peter and Paul, elsewhere in the scriptures, refer to the blood of the Passover as safety and admittance into the presence of God. When John the Baptist points to Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God, he's saying more than, Here comes another Moses to liberate us from another Egypt. He's saying, Here comes the very Lamb by whom sin and death will be conquered forever. So in the vocation of Samuel and the announcement of Jesus by John the Baptist, we receive great inspiration for our journey. We are called by name, and everything that oppresses us has already been conquered in Jesus, the Lamb. Let us cling to him, listen to him, follow him, and seek to put ourselves faithfully at his service when he calls us each by name, as he does. And we can take as our refrain throughout this week the refrain of next Sunday's psalm. Here I am, Lord. I come to do your will. Wishing you once again a happy new year, a belated Christmas, and a richly blessed week to you, your family and friends, your colleagues, and all those you meet along the road. May we meet in the Eucharist this Sunday. Take care and God bless.